Hello. Uh, welcome at last. A little bit late starting today to pop up submissions live. Today's theme, I think you're going to like it, is writing your memoirs. So let's hit that explainer button. If you're wondering about writing your memoirs, yes, you should. Even though most memoirs don't have commercial publishing potential, they're still worth writing. Your autobiography has real meaning for your friends and family and for generations yet to come. Writing your own memoir will help you understand yourself. And without doubt, the act of writing it will make you a more skilled writer. But a word of warning, a lot of unscrupulous vanity presses operate in this area. Think twice before parting with your cash. Commercially, some memoirs do indeed make it to the big time. Celebrity memoirs, misery memoirs, tell-all memoirs, professional confessionals. Most memoirs fail commercially because they don't hook the reader. But if you grip your reader, you might just have a winner. Yeah, and let me just say, I've really enjoyed reading everyone's submissions today. Thank you so much to today's authors for giving us a glimpse into your lives. And as you know, an essential part of the pop-up submission process is the Genius Room. And I can see from here they've just completed their own pre-show checklist. You've got a false. Yes, indeed. Um, here to help me judge today's submissions is... Doesn't need any introduction, really. Thank you so much. The fabulous, the wonderful Kate Salisbury, a producer in these here parts, and also very kindly stepping into uh, the shoes of one of our guests today, who technically couldn't make it, but we'll make it to another show. Also, the ever-popular, omnivorous autodidact herself. Yeah, it's Kaylee Finn. Isn't that wonderful? It's a new month, so there's no monthly leaderboard yet. Uh, if you're watching us live on YouTube, remember, you are part of the show, so please do leave as many comments as you can, and we'll get them on screen. So, all right, let's get stuck in. And here we go. Submission number one. This comes from Anna. Thank you, Anna. QR code there. It's a memoir, as everything is today, really. And it's called Beyond the Bounds. And this is Anna's blurb. This is my second memoir, Beyond the Bounds. In 2003, I flew to Indonesia with 10,000 pounds in the bottom of my suitcase to get my ex-husband, Dave, a former actor, out of jail. He taught me an... He taught... He taught at an English-language college and had an Indonesian girlfriend. He'd been arrested by Indo-police two weeks before with a small joint of marijuana. He was in a rat slash cockroach infested cell with no mattress or bedding and prospects were not good i should say i was given his prison diary in 2019 and interleaving with story all right so it's a little bit abbreviated not exactly what i'd expect from a typical blurb but uh never mind uh let me tell you about anna my first man one was published in 2015 a, hip a hippopotamus at the table I like that title. Should it be Anne? I don't know. Um, in 2018, I published Writing Memoir, How to Write a Story from Your Life, based on several years teaching the topic. I'd also taught, this is interesting, I, I'd also taught ancient Egyptian history and information technology. What a combo. Uh, to undergraduates and the latter topic to inmates of Holloway Prison. Now, I think, I think that's closed now, but it was uh, London's prison for women. 
I have an MA in professional writing. Also, I'm a performance poet. Your accomplishments go on and on. Uh, see um, Anna Merritt slash YouTube. Two published poetry collections. Uh, website. It's there. It's the link. You can just click on that. And I'm delighted to tell you, Anna, we've got a reading here from Martin. Beyond the Bounds by Anna, read by Martin. Chapter One, a telephone call, 4th of July, 2003. I closed the front door behind me and walked up the stairs to the door of my flat. I was carrying two shopping bags and my work rucksack. The keys were in my mouth. I swapped the shopping to my left hand, my fingers cramping with the weight, took the key out of my mouth with my right hand unlocked the door and kicked it open. I walked straight ahead into the kitchen, past the bathroom on my right. The kitchen was a good size for a London apartment, with bay windows overlooking a row of gardens down below. I dumped all the bags on the kitchen table. Phew! I glanced over at the phone in an alcove by the door. The red light was flashing. I remember the moment so well. That red light signalled the beginning of a series of events that would change my life. We'll come back to that. In the here and now, July 2003, I ignored the red flashing light for the moment and emptied the shopping bags, put my rucksack sack out in the hall on a coat hook and thought about what to cook for supper for me, Patrick and Tam. Patrick, a black Zimbabwean asylum seeker, had moved in with me three months after we became lovers. This was mainly because he'd been living in a grimy room at the back end of Streatham and the absentee landlord had decided one day to chuck out all his tenants, for whatever reason. Patrick was given a few days notice and came back one day to find the landlord's maintenance man had changed the locks. There's laws in this country, I hear you say. Yeah, right, if you're a UK citizen with a British passport, there's laws. For immigrants and asylum seekers, with no official status, figure it out. Do they start arguing about their rights? I think not. After phoning me in some distress, he'd come on the bus, the way all asylum seekers travel. It's cheaper. By the time he'd arrived, I decided what to do and organised a few things. Firstly, the lock had been changed, with his few meagre possessions on the inside. Priority number one, get his stuff out. Number two, we needed some protection in case of trouble. It would be better to go late when it was dark and no one was about. I phoned my daughter. Her boyfriend was a six-foot Camden boy. Growing up in Camden schools, he'd soon learned, as they say euphemistically, to take care of himself. He would come with me and Patrick in my old Nissan Micra, sorted, as we Londoners say. After supper, we waited a bit, then drove down to Streatham, not much traffic after 10pm, down through Holloway, Camden Town, where I worked in criminal justice, Euston, the Oldwich, past the Royal Courts of Justice and the pub opposite, the George, where Patrick and I had met, when he was the chair of the Zimbabwe London Forum. Over Waterloo Bridge, Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament lit up in the distance, through the huge roundabout at Elephant and Castle and southwest of Streatham, a run-down area with wide roads and battered Victorian red brick houses, 
many converted into cheap rooms for the large immigrant population living there, a stepping stone to a better life for some. The three of us in the car spoke little. John, a second generation Irish immigrant himself, was quite jovial, cracked a few jokes. Patrick was tense, nervous, and his tension was rubbing off on me. What would we find? A solid lock, a heavy patrolling around. John had brought a large screwdriver, a hammer and chisel to facilitate entry. All we wanted was to liberate Patrick's stuff and get away quickly. No confrontation required. John was good at avoiding trouble. My daughter could get mouthy after a few drinks if men got annoying. I knew John would, rather than get into a confrontation, grab her arm and steer her away. Okay, so we've got Martin. We're honoured to be graced with Martin's presence here. Um, and Martin's... Uh, it's always interesting to get the narrator's point of view. Um, I think that's... I think it's Jack actually. I can't, I can't handle that at the moment. Sorry, I can't do five things at once. Um, Martin says, nice sardonic voice. And it was actually, yeah, I, I definitely picked that up. He also says, I found this shopping bag in Keys, but strangely engaging. I, I quite got into, into, I mean, not an awful lot was happening, but I thought it was really readable, actually. Um, I'm not sure I'd have started there. You've got, Anna, you've got lots and lots of instant feedback here. First reactions from people, which is like gold dust, actually. So if you're watching us live, make sure you write everything down. If you're not, just freeze frame it. And I think we've got a football match going on in the background, too. Oh, Kate, did you have a Hello. reaction to that? Oh, yes, you've voted already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, well, first off, the title, I think, although it's snappy and it alliterates, I think it could be better. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't say much, really does it? tell us. No, it doesn't really tell us mm. much about what we're getting. I mean, something like cockroach in my coffee, or something like oh, yeah, you know, something lovely, that would lovely. that would just kind of snap our attention into that. I think would would be better. It's a bit quirky. I mean, there's there's a kind of midnight express, but with with a seems to be a wry humour um, oh. from the blurb. And in fact, yeah, the blurb wasn't not the blurb that you would put on the back of the book but no. it certainly made me want to read on because i thought this sounds great this has got mm. all the ingredients her ex-husband well this, yes i'm thinking that <laughs> too know. what a nice person anna is to do that 10 grand to your ex-husband <laughs> yeah. wow yeah yes. i need to so, know more about that really exactly so i definitely would want to read on that's why i gave the commercial potential quite a high um, score because I think there's definite commercial potential potential there. I think lots of people would be interested in finding out how all this pans out. Um, I thought, yeah, I, I thought coming in with the shopping's not not particularly engaging place to start. I think the red light flashing is quite nice. Perhaps just start with that. You know, yeah. it was the red light flashing that yeah. changed my life. Yeah. The red light in question was the one on my answer phone when I walked in that fateful day with the plonk the shopping bags down. <laughs> and then, you know, what I would have liked, I think, would just tell us what's going on. We then sort of went out of all that moment. We disappeared off in the car and all the rest of it. And while her relationship with Patrick was interesting and, and that that was in itself quite interesting, it kind of took us out of the moment. In a way, I would have liked to have learnt about Patrick and her relationship with Patrick through 
hearing about what happened, what was Patrick's reaction when she found out what that answer phone message was. And then once we met Patrick and we find out, you know, how he responds, then we can find out how Patrick kind of links into everything. So rather than having to sort of take us out at the moment. But I have to say, I think it's got tons of potential, this. I, I would rework the beginning a bit, actually, and I would retitle it. But I think, you know, I reckon you could get publisher interest in that without too much difficulty, to be honest. Fantastic. Very encouraging. Thank you very much, Kate. What did you think, Kylie? I I feel like I may have underscored this, actually, because um, mm. I, I agree with everything that Kate was saying in, in, in its potential. For, for me, the issue with the beginning was that there was, there was so much detail that was quite pedestrian detail and I, I get the concept of you know it's an ordinary day and when these events tend to happen to us in life they blindside us on days that are all very ordinary and that's the kind of setup yeah. for this but it was too much detail for the opening line so I completely agree it kind of if it is the answer machine message start there more immediately and I guess for me it's trying to touch very lightly on lots of different things in these opening in in kind of this opening setup and i agree rather than trying to do everything at once too lightly that we can't really connect to it as the reader try to find one thing one relationship one dramatic moment that we can really plug into so i was trying to take in lots of different names lots of different relationships and it, it was almost too much for me to take on board and invest in all at one time so I agree with Kate, that relationship, I think that's the kind of kind of rich kind of storyline to mm. really jump into first. Um, but I yeah, I think the blurb again, not conventionally written, but so interesting and I would I would definitely love to read more. Um, and again, something that feels very unique to this story for the title, just have a have another think about that. Beyond the bounds sounds a bit generic for me. It could be any yeah. film, any book. Yeah, it totally could be. It's a placeholder title, really. Uh, very, um, ooh, let me just press the wrong button again. It's that sort of day today. All fingers and thumbs. <laughs> um, so, uh, Genie, please. I, I, I know I, I don't want to interrupt your genius flow, but when, when you do um, um, have a, 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 anything longer than a sentence or two, can you split it into two, uh, two comments so we can read it, actually? Because Lex has just written something really interesting, but it's tiny, tiny. It's one and a half points. I'm going to read it to you. Um, uh, he says, really like that, Kate, the point that Kate was making before. Start with them breaking and entering. Uh, we think they're criminals and drip feed through narrative. They're just trying to get his stuff back. Great subversion. Interesting scenario in theory. Good. Um, and Hannah says, I agree. Too much stage direction. Let's see the numbers so far. Um, and I, let me just say about my um, my scoring here, because remember, I come at this. I I always come at this from a commercial point of view. Can I sell this? Can I make lots of money out of it? If I can't, then you know the bang for me is going to be way down there. It's going to be low. So I look at it from a slightly different point of view, uh, a narrower point of view, actually, a commercial point of view. Um, and you just need to bear that in mind. And usually it doesn't make a lot of difference. But I think with a topic like memoirs, it does. Because you can have something that's really got lots of value, but maybe isn't that commercially valuable. So just, just bear that in mind when you're looking at my numbers, please. Um, you've started, you kicked us off with a very, very solid 54. I hope you're pleased with that. Thank you. Here 
we go. Submission number two. Another memoir. Oh, we're luxuriating in memoirs today. Uh, it's from Rebecca. Hello, Rebecca. QR code there. Please scan it. Actually, you know what? I will also... Here we go. Look at me. I'm just going to put this up. That's Rebecca's website. Okay. There we go. That's Rebecca's website. Quick flash of it. And um, very interesting website it is too. I've spent a couple of minutes on it. And I want to spend a bit more time on it. Um, it's called The Weight of the World. The Weight of the World. This is Rebecca's blurb. My harrowing yet inspirational story of suffering and recovering from anorexia. I was a competitive ath athlete. Oh, we're just getting a lot of background noise here. I don't know where I'm from at the moment. Okay, I'm just going to mute that feed. And I think that's done it. Yeah, thanks very much for that, Iowa. Um, I think I've successfully muted it. So I'm going to start again, actually, so everyone can focus on Rebecca's blurb. My harrowing yet inspirational story of suffering and recovering from anorexia. I was a competitive athlete, being ranked in the top 30 in the UK as a teenager for the 400-meter hurdles, and I hoped to pursue it as a career. It was when I started at Loughborough University. Now, for those who don't know, that's like the number one place to study sports in the UK. Um, and was training with athletes such as Martin Rooney, an Olympic medalist, that anorexia truly started to take over my life. My dreams of becoming an Olympian slipped away as I fell into the grips of anorexia. Okay, let me tell everybody about you. I like that title too, actually, RG. Very much so. Um, I was diagnosed with anorexia, says uh, Rebecca, age 19. And I've had three long hospital admissions, my last one ending in July 2011. And I'm now in recovery. In 2020, I won Vlogger of the Year at the Mental Health Blog Awards and appeared on BBC Panorama alongside Colin Jackson, Colin Jackson the World Championship Hurdler discussing eating disorders in sport. Now, that's a very interesting topic, something I know nothing about, but I'd like to know more. My YouTube vlog, My Anorexia Story, Athlete to Anorexia to Athlete, which was released in November 2020, had over half a million views in the first month. I'm a public speaker and deliver talks on eating disorders and mental health. I also write a blog and I'm the patient and public voice for eating disorders for NHS England and dedicate a lot of my time to campaigning and raising awareness of eating disorders. And I'm delighted to say we've got a reading today from Hannah. The Weight of the World by Rebecca Quinlan, read by Hannah. Introduction. She sat there, broken, a shadow of what she once was. The lights had faded and the cold was overwhelming. She wanted to escape herself, fly away from all that she had become, for someone to mend her broken wings and help her to soar high, high above the pain and sorrow that darkened her world. The butterfly had once been beautiful. She had feared no heights, no cloud could stop her from reaching her heaven. But one day the clouds became too big, forming one grey blanket from which she could not breathe. The butterfly had begun to whittle away, her bright colour dimmed to nothingness. The butterfly became a moth, 
cocooned in her world of sadness, a world from which she could not escape. So there she lay, waiting in hope for the return of the warmth that had fled her heart. Chapter 1 Young, Fun and Free Swing your bum to the left and shake it to the right. Do a little wiggle in between and everything will be all right. We all squealed with excitement. That's brilliant, my friends and I said to my sister, who had just made up a song for us to make a dance routine to. We can be like the Spice Girls. This type of conversation was not unusual throughout my childhood. I can only describe my childhood as being the best I could have wished for. I had two loving parents, a fun older sister, Nicola, who I got on with most of the time, and wonderful grandparents who I saw regularly. I also had a nanny, Jenny, who looked after me when my parents went to work, and once I had started school, looked after me when school finished until my parents got home. Jenny was great, and we always had so much fun, and she always gave me so much love. It was like having a second mum. I was very lucky to have the loving family and extended family with Jenny as I was growing up. When I wasn't at school, you could always find me playing outside with the other kids that lived down my road. We always had a great time making up dance routines, riding our bikes, playing football, board games, going to the park. You name it, we did it. There was never a moment that wasn't filled with fun. From the age of five, I was playing out in the street virtually every weekend. It was great. The weekends were also special because my mum and dad would take me and Nicola into town and we would go to Debenhams for cake. I always had a sticky bun and Nicola always had a Belgian bun. I used to collect puppy in my pockets and Nicola collected trolls. And sometimes when we went to town on the weekend, my mum would buy me a puppy and Nicola a troll to add to our collection. We had hours of fun with those toys, as well as the Polly in my pockets, baby dolls and Barbies Nicola and I both had. On a Sunday, my dad would walk round to the corner shop to buy a newspaper quite early in the morning, and he would always bring back a five-finger Kit Kat and give a stick to me and Nicola. It was even better when the corner shop started selling Spice Girls photos, because I would spend my one pound pocket money buying myself a pack every week to glue into my Spice Girls scrapbook. If we were really lucky, we were allowed to go round to the corner shop and get a bag of penny sweets. Food at that age was fun. We generally ate healthily, but were allowed treats like this. We always ate together as a family and mealtimes were enjoyable occasions. It wasn't until later that this was going to change. Straight to Kylie Fenn. Hmm. I'm. I I'm struggling to appraise this one. I guess the line that I really pulled out there towards the end was food at that age was fun, and I completely understand the approach to trying to set up in a different time when you're a child and you're much more innocent and you don't think about the things the way you do as you kind of develop. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I get that. I think there are, for me, and it's difficult because of the subject matter, mm. it feels like there is a lot of backstory here. And if we're thinking of this as a narrative arc for a 
story, a book, I'm not quite sure we are either starting in the right moment or we're... Hmm. I think, I think it, it's, there's something, but I'm not quite sure what it is, and I'm sure someone could explain it better than I can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Our genius are will. <laughs> yeah, you can rely will, on that. They will, they will. They'll do much better job than <laughs> yes, I will. Yes, um, they totally will. A, and me too, actually. About, oh, yeah, great, great. Yeah, I yeah. know. Um, sorry, I'm not being very helpful. I think the, the introduction, actually, I quite liked. I know there are a few comments that it wasn't quite right, maybe a bit too abstract. Was it the right placement? I, I quite liked that hmm. um, to kind of a different voice a different setup but that's i don't know personal preference um it's a story i would be interesting interested to read i think it's a really important subject yeah, there's a yeah. lot of stigma and taboo around it and i think it's important for writers and speakers to come forward and, and educate people and, and tell yeah, them more about it but, absolutely um so yeah so bex, view, i'm, I'm, I'm sure. going to call you bex because that's what it says on the website so you're pushing an open door here bex uh, i'm far from convinced about your prologue actually i think it might have more meaning if you if you uh, make it an, an epilogue put it in, in lasting the book i don't know uh let's just see what the genius room is saying lots of great things here oh i don't know where to start really um vagabond has some excellent advice as a public speaker which is what you are bex think about how you grab people's attention and start with that that's great advice uh, michelle said maybe starting with the memory of, of experiencing anorexia before or during an event hannah says anorexics recovered anorexics will pick up this memoir but will want to immediately identify with the author's struggle and way back i think still on that page i think there's a comment from eva i like the title i like the title a lot i think it's a great title um eva says i like the title the subject is overused unfortunately it has to have a special bend to succeed now i'm picking that on i'm picking on that particular comment because a lot of commercial publishers will think like that actually even though they may be very want to be as supportive as they can towards you and the subject they still will want to know that this is a commercial proposition so i think that's a hard-headed realistic attitude there um you've got so much support coming from the genius room so much in the way of great editorial comments it's the usual thing freeze frame it write down everything everyone's saying mm. and in the meantime we'll hear from kate um, yeah, title's fine. Um, the blurb, I wasn't that grabbed by the blurb, mainly because I, I think with the sort of misery type memoir, you know, somebody who's been through a really hard time, we also need in the blurb some sense of your resilience, how you got through it, yeah, yeah. Uh, or the fact that you did get through it, and, and there wasn't any of that. So I think um, you could push that a bit more, have on the end, you know, the... Just something to, to, to inspire us as well as to make us feel emotional about it yeah. um, was needed there. I think the angle on this one really is the Olympics, isn't it? It's the, the sport side mm, of things. Because that's very there interesting. have been yeah. Yeah, eating disorder memoirs. And, you know, it, it's, it's a horrendous thing. And it, it's more than ever it's happening now, particularly since the pandemic and so on. There's been an absolute explosion in, in eating disorders. So, you know, now is a, is a good time to publish a, a memoir of this type, particularly one that can offer hope to people who are dealing with it or know people who are, and there are an awful lot of those. But I think, yes, you need that angle that's specific, and I think perhaps the sporting one is the one to go for. Um, personally, I, 
I'm not with Kaylee on the opening. I wasn't grabbed by it, but you know, some people are. Kaylee was, that's cool. Didn't do anything for me. It just felt a bit too grim and a bit too, I don't know. I, I, it just felt a bit too distant. For a memoir, I want to engage with the human. I want yeah. to get with the person telling me about the story and I want to come into their world even if it's a difficult world I want them to to bring me in and, and that didn't do it for me likewise a kind of scattergun approach to childhood and again Kaylee's absolutely right we were getting to that innocent uh, relationship with food but I think in mm. a way we needed to start somewhere closer to the, the, you know, close perhaps to the crisis point, uh, a momentary scene in which you give us a window into th things being difficult, whether it's being faced with eating something or it, perhaps it's exercise, because I know people with anorexia that often have a difficult relationship with exercise as well. Um, and that would obviously link towards the, the sports side of your story. But we needed some kind of scene closer to the present day before we went back into the past and got some background yeah. on you. Yeah, um, so. And then rather than all the Spice Girls and all that, I would just go back way to something like, it wasn't always like this for when mm. I was young, food was fun. And then we can have just riff for a few lines on, you know, going and getting your penny sweets and all that sort of thing. And then sort of take, take us into what what happened what went wrong so i i think there's there's a there's potential here definitely but i think you just it would benefit from reviewing revising and just bringing out the person back so i want to get to know you i want to feel your your joys and your pains with you and i'm not feeling that yet it's not that i don't want to but i think you need to to pull me in a bit more into your story you've got my sympathy but now i want to give you my interest as well let me just ask you both quickly what did you think about the the poems have begun the sort of prologue well yeah as i just said that didn't really do it for me i'm afraid do you like it kylie i i quite liked the the opening lines but i, I mean i guess because it's interesting to see a perspective written in a different way I, if I'm explaining that well you know a struggle written in a different way having said that again whether that comes at the end or it comes maybe even in the middle so it's mm. kind of we're sharing in the very personal experience and then this is how I might articulate it as someone suffering with an eating disorder you know to me it was this mm. metaphor of a butterfly who was starting to fade away I think yeah maybe maybe again placement but I, I, I liked the words Good. Martin says, uh, I, you know, I, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm often left speechless by, by the gin stream because you, you articulate basically what I want to say. Martin says, hits it on the nail. I like the sincerity of the poem. I agree, but not the style. And I totally agree with that. Let's look at the numbers. You got a 58. Bex, don't be unhappy with that. I Means you're in the lead so far. But we're only on number two, actually, because we started late. So let's have a look at submission number three. Here we go. Very quickly. It's a memoir, it's military, it's history. It's, well, it's kind of from Mabel, but it's also from Matthew. It's called Mabel's War. We've got a subtitle squeezed in there. Love and Hope Beyond the Blitz by Mabel Hewitt. Um, now, this is the blurb. Mabel's War is a deeply personal and rarely told account of the Second World War through the eyes of a young girl delivered today by the formidably likable Mabel, The Times. 
That's great. <laughs> Never said that about me. <laughs> Mabel has overcome unthinkable adversity throughout her long and cherished life. She understands that many children today are also living through terrible times. And that's true. Different order, but yes. She wants them to know that life can be better. She's a strong, determined woman who wants to inspire others. This is why she is telling her remarkable story. Okay. So let me tell you about... I guess it's about Mabel, actually. Um, born into poverty during the Great Depression. It's, it's a while ago. Five-year-old Mabel witnessed... No, she wasn't five when she was born, was she? Come on, let's get this right. Five-year-old Mabel witnessed her grandmother burn alive prior to the onset of war. Ooh, why? Um, 11-year-old Mabel suffered abuse during her wartime evacuation, leading her to run away. She survived the Coventry Blitz from the thick of things in central Coventry. She survived World War II. That was... Coventry Blitz was part of that. And built a better life, rising the work... Rising the work ranks and meeting John Hewitt, I don't know what that means, the man of her dreams and sole life partner. She lost John to a fatal heart attack at 56. She defeated cancer at 88. Terrific. All of the proceeds from Mabel's war will pay for school trips for disadvantaged children. Find out more about Mabel. This is the ad here, but I don't mind reading it out. Find out more about Mabel's social impact on this website right now. <laughs> and uh, I'll, let me show you the website. Actually, here we go. I've got it. So it's called Mabel's Enterprise. We fund extracurricular activities in areas with high levels of child poverty. It's a great thing to do. Now, I think the person running that is uh, Matt, Matt Henderson, and Matt is actually Mabel's grandson and the founder of Mabel's Enterprise. Right, so that's a bit difficult to go ahead, Ryan. It's not by any means your typical submission, uh, which means it's going to have a completely atypical, completely amazing reading from Johnny. Mabel's War by Mabel Hewitt Read by John Chapter 1 Born in Troubled Times Looking back, I can see that the sad shadows of war darkened the whole of my young life. The legacy of horrendous suffering and sacrifice in World War I was there from the day I was born. My father, strong and wiry, was a cold-hearted, frightening presence to me as a small child, and that fear pervaded our household. His whip-handled cane stood in the corner, ready to be snatched up and used to threaten us for any minor transgression. His old widowed mother, my granny, lived with us in the city suburb of Holbrooks in Coventry and shared a bedroom with me and my sisters. Always dressed in black, with a temper to match, we thought of her as a witch. Today I understand that my father, Ben Goodwin, serving as a farrier for four long years in the horse artillery at Ypres, was undoubtedly scarred by the sights and sounds of that muddy wartime hell. They say that 368,000 horses served alongside soldiers on the Western Front, holding back the German army as it tried to fight its way through to reach the ports of Dunkirk and Calais. My father cared for the horses that pulled the supply wagons carrying ammunition to the front line. Sometimes they returned carrying the wounded and dead always in the wintry mud. Heavy draft horses pulled artillery guns. Others were ridden to take messages to the front or carry out reconnaissance. My father's skills as a farrier were crucial. He once had a bad fall from a horse, getting his foot caught in the stirrup as the animal moved ahead, breaking his ankle. He had a lifelong limp. In the first Battle of Ypres in October 1914, 
Horses were often swamped with mud and died on the battlefield. They sometimes became tangled in the enemy's barbed wire and had to be shot. They suffered from fatigue and terrible diseases like mange. The front line was terrifying for horses and men alike, with its noise and chaos. My father never spoke of the horrors he had witnessed. My gradual realisation of their effect on him has taken many years. All I knew in my childhood was that there was no love or laughter or fun, or even a conversation to be had with my father. He worked slavishly to keep us out of the workhouse. The price we all paid was that home was an unhappy, cold place where my earliest thoughts were of finding a way out. In 1918, my father had returned to a Britain reeling from loss and sacrifice. Many families were missing their husbands, brothers and sons. There was mass unemployment and little government help. Records show that 35,000 men from Coventry and Warwickshire went off to fight in France, many of them never to return. Our city was an important centre for munitions manufacture. All the car and cycles companies had been converted to help the war effort. It was ironically a boom time for local industry as men left to join the army, and this caused a huge shortage of labour. Women started working in the munitions factories for the first time, and people began flooding in from other areas. The population of Coventry went from 119,000 to 133,000 in 1914. Food shortages began to impact local families as imports from abroad could not get through. Sugar, lard, flour and meat were hard to find and women began to form large queues outside city shops from early in the morning. Often there would be nothing but bones, with a few ragged pieces of meat for them to buy once they reached the end of the queue. Boys were sent out as watchers to scour the city streets, looking for shops where there were some goods to buy. For a penny or two, one of them would save a place in the queue while his friend ran back to alert a housewife that it was a good time to go shopping. The government had not brought in rationing yet, and some people were hoarding food. One woman was exposed in the local press for having bought dozens of bags of flour. She kept them in the bath where they got damp and maggots grew, ruining it all. Families were growing hungry and desperate, and their anger turned against the government refusing to recognise their problems and continuing to reassure the country that the war would be a short one. Thank you very much, Johnny. Great reading. Um, so, oh gosh, so much, so much good stuff in the, in the genius room. Um, Andy made a comment that kind of summarises my reactions completely, but I can't see it there now. Um, let me look at my other screen, actually, I'm sure I've got it here. Um, I started by thinking the same as Johnny, I felt the price here was, was good and I thought it was you know, nice and simple and accessible. Um, but Andy says, this is nice prose, but be careful. It can almost feel like headline after headline after headline, and that can leave us cold. And that's exactly what I thought. But my, that might be just me, because I'm a nasty, cynical old agent. What did you think, Kate? <laughs> yeah, mixed feelings about this one. Um, I wasn't grabbed by the title. Um, I, again, so we need something to jump out of this a bit more. Mabel's War just mm. reminded me of Carrie's War by Nina Borden, yeah. which was a classic. But I feel we need to differentiate because it's a different it's a different story, really. Um, the blurb I, I didn't think that worked at all. Um, again, we need something that connects Mabel's experience of the war specifically with us somehow. Something that raises our interest in Mabel as somebody 
who can and give us a unique perspective on the war from Mabel's perspective mm. and we were told that this is going to be great and wonderful and helpful and and all that but we didn't get any sense of why so I think we need more why um, when it started I thought the prose was very clear it was very lucid but I think the point about the sentences didn't vary enough. Um, they needed to be. There needed to be more complexity occasionally. There needed to be different sentence lengths. There needed to be. It was very sort of subject verb object. You no, know, and and uh, that does lull you into a sense where you you start losing the thread a bit. So I agree with that remark. Um, the other thing is that we were getting too little personality and too much history. Um, social social history, yes, which I do personally find interesting, but actually I wanted a sense of Mabel. If Mabel's so important, then I, I want to start feeling Mabel. I want to hear her voice, and I wasn't getting that. Um, the war horse part um, was quite strong, actually, and I thought you could probably start with that. Mm. You could probably start with my dad, but always relate it to dad. You know, don't go into the generalities, you know. My dad experienced this, my dad did that, da-da-da. And then you bring it to, and that is why when he came home in 1980 and all he could do was try and keep us out of the workhouse, and as a result, what we never felt was the love of our father. It was yeah. always a guy, you know, and then we yeah. can get a sense of coming into Mabel's life and into her household. And then we went back out into social history, you see, and at that time this happened, that happened. Well, I want to hear, you know, I remember as a little girl waiting at the end of that line and, yeah. you know, just scraps left and you know a real sense of you Mabel in mm. there and I think there is an interesting story to be told there and I think and I suspect by the sounds of it you, you're quite a, a formidable personality and I would like to get to know you but at the minute I, I don't feel I'm getting to know you very well at this point so more more humanity I think I need and, and less kind of history uh, lesson absolutely nailed it I think can you add anything to that Kylie you know, if I can, um, I can offer a consensus though. I, I completely agree. So from the blurb, there was a lot of kind of intention, you know, we want to kind of inspire younger generations. That's, we, we need a sense of story. So everything that came more in the kind of the bio needs to be pulled into the blurb. And then I completely agree. I mean, really kind of brilliantly flowing, pacey writing, you know, it, it, it's well written, but structurally it's kind of a contradiction really but you're a great writer but it needs to be again slightly restructured and i guess it's what do we what do we want more of as kate was saying their humanity which is the voice the experience the perspective that's we really want that and i'd like a bit of story moment, oh, can i can yeah. i add a bit of story onto the list please yes yeah. I, I really do want some story in there i mean it's not as that's, if this is the first time this this subject has been tackled um and that's but I've, it I thought, RG, as you said, something really interesting, the gene issue, maybe it's still there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, right-hand column, uh, about 20% uh, of the way down. Uh, I can imagine this is a classroom-set book with the pupils discussing it. It's got that, that sort of feel to it. You definitely could. But I don't know. I mean, it, this is ground we have been over before. And I, I, it seems like every other show I have to mention uh, When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit um, by <laughs> Judith Kerr's book. It's a fabulous book. Um, Matthew, if you don't oh, know, I you must get that a one. copy. Yeah, I Isn't it brilliant? It. Is it, it's, that, for me, that's the standard you, you've got to meet or exceed. And if you don't do that, then I can't get too excited about it. Let's look at the numbers here. You've got a 49 so far. 
Um, that can change. I can go up or down. It's nearly a 50% math here. But I, I, one final piece of advice um, from me. So I'm, I'm assuming this is actually her own manuscript, Mabel's own words. I'm assuming that is. I mean, if it's not, then... I'll have to completely uh, take back this. Collaboration, this I suspect. It might it? be. I don't know. But the thing is that you, what you've got to do, you you should you can quote it. If it is her own words, it's great because it means you know if she's alive or dead. Hopefully she's alive, but she may not be. I'm very old if she is. Um, you you know you've got a sort of a permanent interview there. So you've got fabulous source material, and then you've got to weave the story around it, and you can get her quotes, just you know, copy and paste her quotes, and it'll come in and add a huge sense of vividness and a uh, sense of the person concerned. But um, at the moment, I don't think it's there, to be honest. So there we are, a 49. Sorry about that. Here we go. Number four today comes from Simon. Simon Kibble Elliott's as a biography. Well, it's almost a memoir. We stretching in point? Nah, not really. It's called A Twenty Scandal. Actually, that is the abbreviated title. The full title is A Twenty Scandal, True Story of an Utterly Immoral Novel and the First World War Chaplain Author. It's probably the longest title we've had for a long time, so we couldn't squeeze it in. This is the blurb. Simon Called Peter. That's the title of the book. Simon Called Peter, an international bestseller about an adulterous priest was called utterly immoral by F. Scott Fitzgerald, of all people. Huh, pot calling the kettle black, I think. <laughs> Why did Robert Keeble, a highly respected Cambridge-educated priest who worked as a missionary in Zanzibar and Basutuland, you don't hear much about that today, write such a scandalous novel? How did his experience as wartime chaplain to appallingly treated black labourers in France change him? And how did he end up preaching free love, living in Gauguin's house and marrying a Tahitian princess? Are you living the life? What? I say. This is exciting, isn't it? Let me tell you about uh, Simon. Last year I retired after 25 years as a secondary school politics teacher in order to devote my time to research and writing. Before being a teacher I worked on Fleet Street, I remember the days, um, running a wine bar, Whew, you must have done well, uh, and owned and ran my own restaurant cafe bar in South London for 10 years. Uh, Robert Keeble is my grandfather, oh, the subject of the book, related by blood, and this is my first project. I've been researching his life and work for almost 20 years. It's a long time. Um, I decided to write my book when Dr. Douglas, Tim Cousins, and Dr. Hugh Cecil, who had all started writing biographies of Keeble, failed to finish. And apparently they're all dead. So are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> uh, Douglas Cecil and Cousins' widow... Is that one widow? That's an interesting story there. Have allowed me to use their research for this book and given me their blessing to complete the work. Oh, my word. What an extraordinary thing. Um, it deserved an extraordinary reading from Emily. A Twenty Scandal by Simon. Read by Emily. Chapter One. Simon called Peter in England. Robert Keeble arrived back in Bazutoland, then a British protectorate in October 1918, having served in France with the South African Native Labour Corps, SANLC. 
He spent six months back in his parish before he took a three-week holiday to write his first novel, Simon Called Peter. He set himself up in a hut, alone, an hour's horse ride away from the nearest town, and that with only three houses. Every day he completed his chapter until the novel was finished. The setting of the novel, in France and England, was very different from the view from his hut, but Keeble later wrote that during the war he had seen vivid things and a chance that he was able to write vividly. Novel written, Keeble approached ten publishers before he found one willing to accept the book. Michael Sadler, working for Constable, later wrote that he liked the book's honesty and thought it was too important a novel not to publish. But he also said that he felt his firm's decision to publish was a brave one. By 1920, he believed the public were no longer hysterical about the war, but that there persisted enough prejudice and enough of folly to make the publication of Simon Called Peter a definitely risky business. One risk was that the press, and more importantly the public, would be so upset by the book that no one would buy it. The greater risk lay with prosecution. At the end of the war, the emergency powers of the defence of the Relim Act were repealed so books were neither censored nor checked before publication. However, after publication, writers, publishers, booksellers and even customers could still be prosecuted for obscenity. And the vague understanding of what made a book obscene, the tendency to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences and into whose hands a publication of this sort might fall still dated back to Chief Justice Cockburn's phrasing from a trial in 1868. Reading Simon Called Peter today, it does seem absurd to believe that there was anything in it that could be seen as obscene. However, there are the passages where the priest visits a brothel, another where he sleeps with a prostitute, and the last two chapters describe in detail the weekend he and the nurse Julie spend in a hotel. The last thing Constable wanted was for a destruction order to be granted, as would happen if the book was deemed obscene. This would have resulted in high additional costs from having to withdraw the book, re-edit, reset and reprint it again. Even after the first edition had been printed, Sadler panicked. He wrote to the Keeble explaining that following strong representation from a reliable quarter, he thought Keeble should rewrite a small section. Fortunately, although printed, the sections hadn't yet been sewn together and stuck down. So they decided to reprint two pages to lose three passages, one beginning the tip of a warm tongue, another now you must undress me to find it, and third between her breasts. He added, honestly, I don't think the loss of these words makes any difference to the effect of the scene, but we have good evidence that ordinary brutish man is offended by these particular passages. Keeble was more amused than upset by the changes. He later wrote that the book's publication was delayed for a month. Because it was felt that whereas the booksellers might display a book containing a certain passage which referred to a woman's bosom, they would not do so if it contained a plural synonym. Eventually the book was launched on the 1st of May 1921. From Keeble's viewpoint, he found himself in the middle of a storm for the next few weeks. The Church Times's review headed A Very Disagreeable Novel began, Mr Keeble's book is the story of unattractive and sordid vice on the part of a clergyman. The Guardian reviewer suggested, not only is the theme unpleasant, but its working out is infinitely nasty. If Mr Keeble had not written an actually immoral book, he had certainly produced a very offensive one. So, fabulous reaction here from uh, the Ginger Sim as always. 
And Eva's reaction kind of summarizes mine. Um, Eva says, yeah, if you promise sensation, you have to give it right at the start. And I think that's so true. Um, RG said a lot of good stuff, but let me just, mm, I can't find it. Uh, I can't find it. Um, Emily, our narrator, says, this has fantastic promise. But I felt it started in the wrong place. It was uh, actually that's what RG was saying. That everything today started in the wrong place. Um, it was just too dry, and that's what I wrote down. Dry. I'd start with a good bit of immorality to draw me in. Yeah, why not? It's, I mean, it's a fun story, isn't it? It's fun. It doesn't have to. It's not polemic. It's an adventure. Um, but maybe I'm just a, a hopeless sensation seeker. I don't know. Tell me, Kaylee. Oh, I think we all like a bit of sensation, don't we? And again, if you're promising it, we want a taste of it up front. Um, I mean, the writing is brilliant, I think. It's so well established. There was a line, um, and I only managed to get some of it down. It said, reading Simon Corpeter's Day, it does seem absurd that we think it was obscene or something like that. And for mm. me, that's where it, it drew me in a bit more because it was almost kind of twinkle in the eye, like, these funny passages about what would be deemed, you know, gratuitous or, you know, what what would people want to read. I, I quite liked that bit until the end, um, but I didn't like, uh, sorry, didn't, not like, um, I wasn't sure about the, the opening. It just, I wasn't grabbed by it. It wasn't, there was, you know, it, yeah. it wasn't for me. It was started yeah. in the wrong place. And um, I think there was, better material to choose from or a better story point to choose from yeah i think literary quotas interrupt us thank you pamela j oh yeah wasted opportunity says vagabond uh here we are gagging after the blurb and now we've all gone off not great pamela j also says reminds me of the john cleese skit about a teacher that makes sex boring to teens (laughs) that's the way to put them off kate yeah, um, I kind of agree with all that, really. Title, I think an immoral novel or the story of an immoral mm. novel might have been better than a 20s scandal. And it, but it was, it was too long. It was kind of trying to jam-pack too much stuff in there, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I found the blurb intriguing. I, I thought, oh, yeah, this sounds like there's quite a lot going on that would be interesting to, to read about. I thought perhaps there were a few too many rhetorical questions in there, but certainly there were lots of uh, interesting uh, little hooks there. Um, I think, yeah, the issue was just that the book was written like a list of facts and events and I wasn't getting any sense of the story of the the novel. Um, I mean, you could have started with something like when Robert started the utterly immoral novel, he set himself up in a hut just to horse ride away from blah. And then, and then chat to me about it. I wanted a chattier tone. Yeah. Um, but what, what we did get was just this listing. And, and that's just quite disengaging, which is a shame because I think there's a lot of great material there, clearly. But what you need to do is present it to us in a way that draws us in. And at the moment, it's just this, then this, then this, then this. Yeah. And it's, it's not really giving us a driving narrative to keep us wanting to find it's out. It's an academic feel. Does it feel academic to you? Yeah. Yes, it does. It's like a textbook, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. It's the last thing we want. Last yeah. thing we want, really. Defrocked curate says Johnny. <laughs> yes, please. Now then, he's this this character. Um, your uh, granddaddy is that right? Grandfather? Is it grandfather? I think it is. Um, Simon, um, I've been looking at yeah, Wikipedia. 
He's got a long entry there. So, you know, there's there's obviously someone who's holding a candle or two for him. Um, but it's not quite going the right way at the moment. Well, I, I haven't think... done anything yet, have I? Oh, yes, God. you have, Kate. I... No, I haven't. I'm doing it now. I'm doing it now. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much. Good, good, good. Now, while you're doing that, I'm going to pose you a question, okay? Because this submission actually i did a double take when i looked at this because i thought i know this story it's it's about um a uh, a vicar in the early part of the 20th century who lived somewhere completely inaccessible in norfolk and used to spend almost all his time in soho saving mm. wicked women and he was exposed and he, he was called the prostitute's padre right so i thought i knew that um that it was going to be that but it wasn't this is a different one so i've got a bonus question to both our wonderful guests today. The prostitute's padre actually came from a place quite close to where I grew up in Norfolk, and this is the place. Okay? Now the question is, how do you pronounce that name? I can't see it. My um, box is in the way of it. Oh, okay, I'll spell it. S-T-I-F-F-K-E-Y. Kaylee, have a go. Uh, stiff key? Nope. <laughs> That's nope. the obvious one. It's too obvious in all I know. Kate, Kate, have a go. Uh, goodness, I've no idea. Spell it again. Spell it one more time. S T I F F K E Y. F F K E Y. Yes. If it's, if it's <laughs> not stiff key, what is it? <laughs> You're never going to get it. I mean, Kelly and I both know Cornish. Uh, pronunciations but this, this no i've got no stickly, idea stickly says johnny oh. no it's stukey 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 not stukey 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 there you okay. go completely useless piece of knowledge A silent double f Yes, exactly. It's very Norfolk. It's breaking actually. all the rules, isn't it? Very, very much so. I just threw that in as a bonus. There you go. You got a 51 there, Simon. Uh, we, we love the topic. We're not convinced that the academic treatment is the right way to do it. And what we're going to do now is look at the very last submission of the day. And here we go. It's called Felix. It's a memoir. It's from John Buchanan Nickel. And there's a very complex QR code there too, but uh, hopefully the resolution of your screen is so high you won't have any problem at all resolving it. And this is John's blurb. She stayed. She stuck around. She stood fast in the face of my chaos, my mania, my nihilistic narcissism, my me. She stayed in her incredible, irreplaceable uniqueness as we found in each other that intangible, unflappable, indefatigable first cause, a divine spark. A feeling of being home without walls nor structure. A buzz which never faded. That's something we all search for, unable to describe until we find it, unable to appreciate until we lose it. And I threw it away. Just why did I do that? Read on and find out. Um, this is about you, John. The chasing of milestones and totems are what got me here to rock bottom, a familiar place which I've never been to. Just digesting that. A space more than a moment, less of being surrounded in carnage with no room to move, but a process of grinded decay. An attrition of concentric circles, as those around me 
those who invested their time, their treasure, their tears and torment to those who have stayed with me in spite of the inevitable, have made their peace and steadily began to fade away. My friends, my kin, my intimacies, a lifetime in the making until it was just one before none. Now, rudderless, I am at the mercy of the wind and the waves, removed of everything that made me able and capable of not being the caricature I've become. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to, I'm going to digest that inwardly uh, while Robert does his best with your submission. Felix by John, read by Robert. I sat in squalor. Naked on my chair, emaciated, dishevelled, unclean and haggard, I sat broken, smashed on the rocks, trash near ankle deep from a month of neglect, the visual, a physical and tangible representation of the decay inside of me, as there, riddled with debt, consumed with guilt, alone and in isolation, and with the wolves at the door, the gnashing of their teeth, the growl of their intentions within earshot, I saw nothing but a comfort in death, my demise being my only option, the path of least resistance. I steadied myself, the blade now inches from my throat, still covered in crusting butter from my last meal some days before. I took a breath, then another, and then a third until I felt it, that impulse, that surge of intention shooting right up my arms. I put the sharp tip to my skin, cueing at my neck like a white ball, and I paused. I held my breath and was set. I could feel my heart racing, trying to escape my chest like a separate entity, to evade my body like an animal in abattoir. I counted down. The world, I affirmed, was better off without me. My children, my beloved, precious children, would in time reconcile my actions and move on, continuing in the world with me as a memory, fading from their recollections as time passed by before relegating me to a photograph on their mantelpiece, journeying with them through life, through the relationships, through their ups and downs, home moves and transitions, but in effect, no different to an ornament, a piece of sentiment they'd have little connection with, but as the effigy of a man who they dream about, recalling his touch, his embrace, his scent, him as me, as their father. And they'd cry. They'd cry just like I do when my departed father comes to visit at night. I felt that surge again with more anger, more aggression, as a pastiche of contempt, a cauldron of swirling vitriol for everything and everyone who had brought me to here, to this point, even a hatred of pure circumstance and chance that had all conspired to deny my amazing babies the life they deserved and not the ones they'd surely now lead. And at that, I told the world to go to hell especially fate. I told fate to flee and derided it for having wasted my time. All of that effort I'd sunk into a false dichotomy, the fallacy of man-made versus men, the fiction of fate against the rationality of reason, of a very real, soothing theism against the capriciousness of a distant deism, of fulfilling a path or terraforming on landing, of painting by numbers or a cartography from scratch and always a conflict, 
always a constant cerebral confliction and never an abstract, but instead a tangible struggle which had consumed my life, ended my life even, for the conundrum's answer is both everything and nothing, nothing to everyone but the seekers, everything down to the minutiae for those who ask, as if, as for where if where now I am now, with my knife in hand, is simply fate, then I should look up and ask why. But if it's nothing but chance, if I am truly with agency and a capacity to action, then I have to search within and ask how. And that's difficult, as the former makes me a victim, while the latter at fault. It matters, then. It matters, then, where we sit on that sliding scale of fate versus chance. And as the answer can only make sense in retrospect, so moot a point in the now. It's the one rhetorical question I've lived with where the conclusion is everything. As now, sitting here and looking back on all of those sliding doors in my life, those gateways in time, are the myriad of forks and opportunities, and so the endless futures I could have had, shared with souls unknown, never to be known, it matters so more than ever. It matters as to what I do now, fight or flight, cut and run or cut and die. As those markers in my direction of travel, the smallest choices bearing the biggest of consequences, giving me a plot to my story, liberating me at times from the mundane as me the Messiah before releasing me back into my shackles, my bondage of chains, catacombs no less, Dark underground dens, true Tartaruses of torment, they all matter to me now and to this decision I have to make. They are both everything and nothing. Thank you. Um, absolute, absolute star, Robert. Thank you so much for that reading. Uh, you did it. You did it, mate. You got there. Well done. Um, lots and lots of reactions um, for you, John, in the uh, Genius Room. You've got good reactions from your fellow writers, very supportive people. Okay, so read, learn, inwardly digest. And for me, as the one that sums it up, um, it's probably Eva's actually again. Eva's star today. Eva says, and yes, it's it's um it's a bit hard, but I, I think this, it's true. I've got to got to we've got to be honest. It's self-indulgent writing, not really the purpose of memoir. I agree with that. What did you think, Kaylee? I do agree with that. So it was very flamboyantly written, if that's the right phrase. But it yeah, was that's a nice way like a, <laughs> It was, but there were some parts where it was almost like I was reading riddles. Um, it was very. I could not invest in any particular moment of this, but there was. It, there, I mean, there was a dramatic moment. It, it, our sense of place or time is maybe right, but not how it's being described and, and, and kind of laid out for us. And I have to say, if it hadn't have been read so well, um, the audio, I'm not sure if I would have followed along nearly as well. No. Um, so I think, you know, from a reader's perspective, this really needs to be toned down or pared back, give us more of a sense of 
story, relationship. This is very kind of inward looking in quite a, a complex narrative almost. Um, and in terms of just some fundamentals, Felix as a title, I'm not sure it doesn't really mean anything to me. Um, maybe it would once I've read the whole story, but if I'm looking at something off the shelf um, and trying to put it together with your blurb, I'm not sure it's that compelling. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, All right. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm not really sure where this is, what the story is. I think that's going to say it's about I, love I, and romance. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's, it's I, relationship, but we don't know, and that's the problem. We don't know. We don't know. And I, I'm just thinking if, if I had to tell somebody what it was about, I couldn't tell them actually. Kind. Well, this is a writer that really loves words, really loves words. I think you need to tone down your relationship with words yes i think that's the issue in fact martin and i were obviously on the same page with this because i'd written even before martin's comments about shakespearean came up i'd written all sound and fury signifying nothing mm. <laughs> which is king lear i believe uh, and i've written i've also written down it has all the ego of lear and the verbosity of hamlet but nobody's heart I, there was no heart for me yeah. lots and lots That's of fine words and i mean That's somebody you know really threw a dictionary onto the onto the page and just went just saw where the words landed but mm. th they weren't telling me anything was the problem yeah. um katie is spot on with her comments as well i felt the blurb had too many words that said too little um we need heart and we, we need story and I didn't feel we got either of those yeah. um, I'm, I'm still not sure as Kaylee isn't exactly what this memoir is about it's just a, a story of one person's life perhaps okay but, but what is it about this particular life that makes me want to read it and hmm. you didn't really answer that question um, so yeah this 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 needs work i think and i think you need you need to divorce yourself from from your love of your words a bit and just step back yeah and take take some sort of it was hemming wasn't it hemingway he was really strict about mm. being too wordy i think you mm. need to take some of hemingway's advice and and cut out um, some of those lovely, lovely, lovely words. But the trouble is we just get lost in them. We end up in a labyrinth of words and we just don't know where we're going with the story. Yeah, and Pamela Joe says, Sound and Fury signifying nothing was our code for baby's diaper doesn't actually need to be changed. That's nice. That's, <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Let's look at the numbers on that. John. Oh, dear. Oh. Really? Oh. Uh, Kylie hasn't pressed her button. Sorry. Oh, we're breathless now, biting our nails here to see how the numbers work out on that. A few seconds delay. Um, it's a bit purple, actually, uh, John. You've you've grossly overwritten it. It's very purple. And there we go. You're up to 40. It's not bad, but it's not going to win the show. Let's look at the numbers, please. All right. So Anna's got 54. Bex has got 58, and uh, Matthew slash Mabel's got 49, uh, Simon got a 52, and just then, yes, John, you've got a 41 now, the number changed a little bit, as it does, as people uh, bring their votes into the genius room, but I have to say, it's very clear who the winner is today. <laughs> So far, 
it means you are actually Emily. Isn't that brilliant? I think it's brilliant. Well done. So here we go. Uh, it's been a technically difficult show. We got through it. Fabulous guests. Fabulous genius room. Great submissions from you. And although writing is a solitary occupation, mostly at least, producing pop-ups certainly isn't. Wouldn't even be possible without Kate, you've just seen, Rachel, our guest producers, Emily, our submissions manager, all our implausibly talented narrators who you've seen, our team of reviewers, all the geniuses in the genius room today, special guests, Kaylee, of course, and Kate again, of course, all you wonderful authors who we love to bits, please join us here live next week. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Walking down with suits and ties, just sitting in the crowd, smoking big cigars. I hope you're ready for what's coming now. I'm the one, I'm the lady that would bring you down. There's a joint on the corner where the big boys play, where the whiskey's running like the rivers by day. I'll never come for the booze and bass. I'm the one, I'm the lady that'll rock this place. Where the big boys play 